Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human Podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more individual freedom and less unnecessary suffering. Pat Anson joins us today, and he is the founder and editor of the Pain News Network. They are a media outlet that covers the personal and political side of chronic pain. And that's exactly what we discussed today. Unfortunately, there are millions and millions of Americans out there who are being undertreated or actually being denied treatment for their pain. And that has a lot to do with the CDC guidelines that came out in 2016. We discussed the origin of those guidelines and also the most recent comments by the FDA and CDC regarding them and what that means for people who are currently suffering in pain. Pat made a great comment during our conversation that even if you aren't in chronic pain now, one day you could be. And so this issue is important for us all. We also discussed the alternatives that people are seeking if they're being undertreated or denied pain medicine, and they are turning to medical marijuana and also Kratom. I personally use Kratom to help manage my chronic pain, and the only brand I trust is Urban Ice Organics. And you can find them at naturalorganics.com. That's naturalorganics, O-R-G-A-N-I-X.com. You can use the promo code chronicallyhuman20 to get 20% off your next order. So thanks for listening today, and let us know your thoughts about living with chronic pain in America. Thank you, Pat, for being on the show today. Thanks for the invite, Brad. Excellent, man. Well, I really appreciate your work, appreciate your work over it. At the Pain News Network, I think it's very important that folks hear what's going on with, uh, with, with people in pain. And especially in the last few years, it's been really crazy. And just recently in the last week, there's been some movement finally within some of these large bureaucratic regulatory organizations like the CDC and the FDA. So I really want to dive into that. But before okay. that, um, how did you get started with the Pain News Network and what is your guys' mission over there? Well, I started covering, I've been a, a, a journalist, a reporter for uh, over 40 years. I started covering uh, chronic pain and pain management about eight years ago, I think it was. And in 2015, I, I thought uh, uh, PNN is a nonprofit. Um, and, and I thought that was a, the best way to go in terms of, um, you know, providing, a, you know, credible information about chronic pain and pain management. I thought a nonprofit website was the best way to do that. Okay, great, man. Yeah, that's great. That's a that's one way to do it, and and I think that a lot of people don't understand what it's like to live in chronic pain. Even though there's millions and millions of people out there, it's really like a silent epidemic that really has gotten worse in the last, I think, fifty years. I think so too, and there's a lot of different reasons for it. Um, you'll hear people say sometimes, like, uh, "Well, people to complain too much about their pain nowadays," and. A hundred years ago, we used to just rub subliminate on our elbows and we were fine. And now, you know, people are are kind of spoiled. Um, and, and I think there is more pain in our society simply because we're living longer. A uh, hundred years ago, the average life expectancy was what, 45, maybe 50. Uh, now people live 20, 30 years uh, longer than that. On average, we have conditions like diabetes and arthritis uh, there are medical procedures that leave us in pain, like chemotherapy and, and you know, a lot of back surgeries, as I'm sure you know, don't work that well. Um, and so there is more pain in our society. That's a great point, because I do think, too, with autoimmune issues, I think that's a huge issue. Just to give you a little background on myself, 
When I was 11, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, a really severe case. Age 12, I had my colon removed. And since then, I had 20 surgeries, 50 hospital stays, and hundreds of doctors' visits. So, so I understand on the autoimmune side and also on the surgery side as well, because I don't think that our lifestyle really matches up with how we're supposed to be living, to be honest with you, especially with our diet and just right. the way modern society works. Right. And I think people and, and exercise does yes. have a lot to do with it. Um, I think we're more sedentary now, whether we're healthy or unhealthy. We spend a lot of time in front of our computer screens uh, and we don't get out and exercise as, as much as we should. And that that also enters into this. Definitely. Let's talk a little bit about, let's set the stage for folks, as far as what's been going on in the chronic pain community for the last few years. It's hard to go back and imagine what it was like in 2016, 2017, but there really was a, a hysteria that was sweeping the country concerning pain medicine. Now, what, what do you think caused that? And do you think things, well, we're going to talk about if it's getting better or not, but what do you think caused that? And what was it like back then for folks in pain? Well, back then it was easier to get pain medication. Uh, it's it's really tightened up ever since the CDC guideline came out. It came out in 2016, but things have really started to tighten it just in the past year or two, because uh, primarily because insurers started to adopt the CDC voluntary guideline as their own mandatory guideline, and the insurers have forced it on uh, a lot of uh, pharmacy chains. Um, and also providers, plus you have the DEA essentially adopting uh, the CDC guideline as a template for everything that they do. Um, and so that's kind of a very simplistic way to describe what's happened over the last two or three years. But the, the, the changes for the pain community have really just been significant. And I don't think the average person out there is really aware of how much things have changed and how this ultimately is going to affect them as well. I think that's a great point on that, Pat. Personally, I've been affected because I was, you know, for the last 30 years, you know, I've, I've been on pain medicine pretty much my entire life. And it just got harder and harder and harder to get. And the doctors became more and more reluctant to give. And they cited concerns about the DEA. They were flat out say, Brad, we've received a letter. You know, we don't feel comfortable anymore uh, prescribing pain pills to you anymore. So I did get cut off from my primary physician who I'd been seeing for over three years. And he gave me a two-month supply and said, go find a pain clinic. He gave me uh, the name of a clinic, but they wouldn't treat me. I had to call 10 other clinics. And for six months, I was able to manage my chronic pain on my own. But it got so bad, I finally had to submit and go to the pain management system. So, And now I've actually opted out of that as well. We can get into that a little bit later. But are you seeing a lot of people that have been driven into the pain management system even who were doing well and okay within their primary care giver actually providing long-term chronic pain medicine. That seems to be a model that worked for a lot of people. Yeah, uh, I think uh, statistically, I haven't looked at the, the most recent stats in a while, but I, I know that the, the primary care providers were responsible for the majority, the vast majority of uh, opioid pain medication prescriptions that were written. This was as of let's say four or five years ago. I'm not sure what it would be now, but I would expect it to be significantly reduced. So people are, are not only losing uh, their, their primary care providers, but even just getting into pain management is really difficult. Mm -hmm. And if you do get into a clinic, they're gonna try and, um, you know, there are stories of uh, people being forced into surgeries or they're put on suboxone and their pain is no longer really being treated. They're being treated as an addict. 
they're not being treated as a, as a pain sufferer. And that's exactly how, that's what happened to me because I had seen 11 doctors previously that year trying to figure out what was causing my severe pain. It turned out to be an abscess from a previous surgery that was causing horrific amount of pain. And when I finally did get to the pain doctor, he did put me on a form of Suboxone and antidepressant. That was his answer to that. Even though I had been helped in the past by, by certain medications, but I didn't feel comfortable asking for them because I was afraid I'd be kicked out. You know, right. so it is a, I think it's a very dehumanizing system that if people haven't been in it, they don't understand you're forced to go every month. You're forced into medication that, that's more expensive than what you've been previously taking. And your records are put into a prescription drug monitoring program at the state level, which is now going to be federally accessible. I don't think people realize that. And you're made to pee in a cup like you're a convicted parolee. Right. That's what really got me to, to looking for alternatives to that system. Right. And once you get Suboxone on your, on your uh, prescription drug record, it sticks with you. And if you go to an emergency room, the, the you know, doctor's going to look you up on the PDMP and say, well, this guy was treated as an addict. He's, he's, he's not here for, for pain relief. He's here to get some drugs to score. And that is a red flag. Yeah, I was always afraid of getting red flagged. I'm pretty sure I am now. But uh, it's hard to know if you are or not. That's one of the things about the prescription drug monitoring program. There doesn't seem to be an appeal process or even a way to look at your current record. Right. Um, and it's, it's been monetized by private companies who have access to this information. And they're reselling it uh, back to the doctors so they, and giving patient scores uh, to individual patients. A lot of people are unaware that they even have a score that, or that any private company has access to their data and that they're interpreting it the way they see it as to what kind of risk they have for addiction or overdose. Wow. I, d I was not aware of that. I knew that some universities were looking at this to do studies on, but I wasn't aware that companies were actually mining this data and selling it. It doesn't surprise me. That's what... Uh, you know, we don't really have any kind of privacy nowadays anyway. Right. It's a company called uh, uh, Apris Health. They're based in Kentucky, and they've tied into, they have access to most of the information on PDMPs. And they, you know, we did a story on it uh, on PNN about a year ago. Um, I had not heard of this company uh, uh, until then, and I started looking into it, and it's like it was, it was an eye-opener to me. I had no idea that that kind of information was out there and uh, available to, the, like I say, this one company. And there are also universities that are teaching programs for these different state coordinators for the prescription yes. drug monitoring program that were instrumental in the CDC guidelines being created, that they right. have a direct connection with the 2016 guidelines that we were mentioning. Right. Uh, I, I imagine you're thinking of Brandeis University, and that's where Andrew Kolodny, who's uh, most people uh, may be familiar with that name. He's the executive director and founder of PROP, uh, Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. He uh, is now um, conducting uh, you know, a research study, and he heads a program at Brandeis that, that basically is studying the PDMP data. And that's something, too, that a lot of people don't realize who aren't familiar with this story that there's a lot of money involved in this. There's actually over $6 billion of taxpayer money that got kicked loose towards the end of last year. And that's gone to all type of government agencies. The State Department received $500 million. The Defense Department received like $500 million. USDA is receiving money to put clinics in rural areas. And these private organizations are also getting quite a bit of money, especially in the addiction community. 
and also even pharmaceutical companies to research novel different opioid drugs. It, it goes on and on, um, and it's kind of the one of the uh, more understated aspects of all of this. Uh, uh, there's the drug testing industry, which is notoriously uh, corrupt um, uh, and has been fined hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, you know, by the federal government for for overcharging on drug tests um, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, there have been a few uh, genetic companies that have also been caught. Um, uh, overcharging and uh, bilking, um, you know, Medicare and Medicare patients. Um, it, it's even the established companies, uh, you know, like Pfizer and Eli Lilly. They make nerve medications such as Cymbalta or Lyrica and Neurontin, and those are the drugs um, that that when a patient is taken off opioids, when a doctor gets too scared to prescribe opioids, uh, those are the drugs that that are often prescribed as alternatives even though they were never meant to treat pain at all. Uh, but they'll, uh, you have millions of patients put on those drugs. They're effective for some, for some they're not effective at all. And, and a patient could have just as much difficulty getting off Cymbalta, for example, as they could getting off Oxycodone. And that goes back to the point with the, the CDC guidelines and the current letter that the director put out about the, the unintended harmful consequences, that they had no idea that this would possibly, that their guidelines would be taken um, so literally that actually people would follow their guidelines and that it would have such a dramatic effect on, uh, on pain patients out there. Yes, uh, CDC Director Robert Redfield uh, released a letter. Uh, interestingly, he, he sent the letter the day after the FDA came out with, a, with an advisory of its own saying, too many patients are being tapered uh, and discontinued off opioids too quickly. So it was kind of like the FDA. What's another thing that's interesting about what the FDA did is that they did it just a few days after Scott Gottlieb uh, left as commissioner. So the, the timing there... Uh, I mean, is that did Gottlieb was opposed to this or was he for it? But it was just it was odd that he would that this find that this warning from the FDA would come out after Gottlieb had left. Um, it was even stranger when the CDC chimed in after the FDA came out with their warning that basically acknowledged for the first time as yet that there are some unintended harm uh, being coming to patients and that they will uh, will or I think the exact quote working diligently to evaluate the impact of the guideline and clarify its recommendations. So what does that mean? Are they just going to rewrite uh, the whole guideline? Does that mean that they're just going to change a few words here and there, or they're just going to tell the insurers and the pharmacies and the doctors, uh, you know, don't take us too seriously. We just meant this as voluntary. I don't know. And that's a great point, especially if you read the wording of that. I mean, if you want a, a case study and bureaucratic ease about the ability to diffuse responsibility and not take any responsibility for your your um, your agency's previous actions. I think he could he could teach a class on that. It, it's puzzling, and to be fair to, to Redfield, is that he's only been CDC director uh, for about uh, a year. He inherited the guideline and the fallout from it. Um, and, but this this is. That I'm, this letter that he sent out last week on April 10th is is the first real public indication of what his thoughts were about the guideline and whether or not it should be changed at all. I'm not really convinced that we're in store for a major rewrite of the guideline. Uh, I, I think we'll just see some 
um, some some minor clarification of, of you know it being a voluntary guideline, um, and that'll be it. Now, whether such a restatement of the purpose of the guideline will result, will will get insurance companies and pharmacies and doctors to change their minds. Whether states will then go back and change the regulations they've adopted over the last two or three years, uh, I don't know. And that's a great point about all of these different agencies that have taken that as law, that this guideline was for basically for um, for general practitioners, basically, is how I read it originally. And it was just yes. basically for if you're prescribing to new patients to be careful, you know, don't exceed the 90 uh, morphine milligram equivalent. And that if you do, you need to counsel the patient and offer other alternatives before you do right. that. But instead, it got taken as law, and a lot of thousands and even millions of chronic pain patients were undertreated or even denied treatment because they did exceed those 90 uh, morphine milligram equivalents uh, in the pain medicine that they were taking. Right. Um, um, you know, like I said, uh, we're just going to have to see and see how this unfolds. Uh, you know, I mentioned before. Uh, uh, when we chatted before the broadcast began this morning, there was a. I went back uh, after the statement came out from Redfield last week. I started to to think back to 2015 when the, when the uh, CDC first came out that they were talking about this and and it had created these guidelines. And I came across a document that they sent to what they called stakeholders, which were interested parties. Um, and I'll read it to you. I wish I could put it up on the screen. It'd make it easier for. Uh, for, for people to see at home, but I'll, I'll just read it to you. And it's talking about the purpose of the clinical guidelines that the CDC uh, was about to release. This came out in, I think it was October of 2015. You tell me if these things happened or not. Okay. So the statement is, efforts are required to disseminate the guideline and achieve widespread adoption and implementation of the recommendations in clinical settings. CDC is dedicated to translating this guideline into user-friendly materials for distribution and use by healthcare systems, medical professional societies, insurers, public health departments, health information technology developers, and providers, and engaging in dissemination efforts. And it goes on along, basically along those same lines, but it, it, it sure reads to me like there was a plan four years ago to get the CDC guideline widely implemented and adopted by throughout the healthcare system. And that's, that's, that's how it sounds like to me as well, that they wanted widespread adoption. And the reason why they were doing this is because they were trying to stop opioid overdose deaths. I think that was the main push um, for the reason for that. But as we have seen, as prescriptions are going down, opioid overdose deaths are actually going up. And those are having to do with illegal opioids like fentanyl, carfentanyl, and even heroin. Right. Um, there's a study that came out today. I haven't had a chance to, to uh, do a story on it yet, but it's a study out of West Virginia, which in a lot of ways was ground zero for the whole opioid crisis. I mean, they did have an, a, a shocking amount of uh, opioid prescriptions written in West Virginia 10 years ago. Um, and most of the deaths 10 years ago, the overdoses were being attributed to uh, uh, interestingly, Xanax was number one, uh, and then followed a bunch of uh, opioid medi medications like hydrocodone and oxycodone. Um, that's all changed in the last few years, and now fentanyl is by far, and fentanyl al analogs are by far the, the, the drug most commonly found in overdoses in West Virginia, along with 
uh, cocaine and methamphetamine is moving up. And interestingly, uh, Xanax is still in the top five. Wow. And that's a good point about the different drugs. A lot of the people who do unfortunately overdose, first of all, they don't know what they're taking. And so this fentanyl is getting slipped into stuff because I had heard one addict one time say, I want to get high. I don't want to die. So these people aren't taking this stuff on purpose to kill themselves. It's adulterated. And I think it's caused by the black market that when people are forced to go to the black market, they don't know what they're buying. And right. a lot of it has to do with the, the, the fentanyl coming in from China and places like that. Right. I think for the most part, the people who are overdosing were already heavily involved with drugs. Um, uh, I, you know, you hear stories about pain patients who are denied medication, uh, legal medication, about then going to the black market uh, or to their friends or, or relatives and trying to get their pain pills. I think that happens, but I don't think it's a, a significant number of pain sufferers who are doing that. The feedback I get from patients is that they're very careful about what they put in their bodies. Yes. Um, some are very reluctant even to just take a uh, medical marijuana, because they know if their doctor ever found out about it, they, they'd never get opioids from that doctor again. So patients are really very conservative about that. And when they do finally make that leap and they start using other substances, legal or not, uh, you know, alcohol uses, I, I think, has gone up con considerably. That's still, it's still legal. Um, uh, and uh, you're not going to you don't need a prescription to get alcohol. Uh, but I think all these other substances are coming into play and people are experimenting more. Um, and, and that in turn is helping to drive the overdose uh, crisis even worse. Yeah. Personally, when I got cut off, I did think about going to the black market, but like you said, for people in pain, they usually have been in the healthcare system and concerned about their health, their health for me for over 30 years, I would never put something into my body that I wasn't sure what it is. And I've actually found Kratom to be effective for me for managing mild to moderate pain. It's not as effective as pain pills by any stretch, but it allows me to have uh, a certain quality of life. Are you seeing a lot of people, um, a lot of interest in Kratom when you guys do stories? Because I know that I've seen stories about Kratom on Pain News Network. Mm -hmm. We started covering it a few years ago and did a survey uh, about it. Uh, uh, I knew nothing about Kratom. Um, let's say three years ago, and then the FDA, said, or the, actually it was the DEA, said that they were going to ban it. And I thought, well, I better find out <laughs> more about this substance. And uh, it's been it's been quite an education for me. We did a survey um, in 2016. We had over 6,000 kratom users participated participate, and they told us that you know chronic pain was the number one issue by far that they use it for. But they also do it to treat opioid addiction, alcohol addiction. A lot of people take it for depression and anxiety or a combination of all two or three of those things. And um, the, the, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but um, the people who use Kratom were very uh, enthusiastic about its effectiveness. And they, they said it was very effective in relieving their symptoms. And I have found it as well with opioid withdrawal because I've gone through opioid withdrawal in the past from pain pills when doctors had cut me off or for different reasons. And it's, it's actually a nightmare when you're in chronic pain, when you have to go through opioid withdrawal, which happens when people are on long-term uh, pain medicine. You know, your body becomes dependent on it, and for two or three weeks, it's absolutely miserable. But I have found with Kratom that it eliminated up to 95% of my symptoms for that. So I, I found a lot of relief for that, so I can understand why those folks were reporting that.
Right. Well, let me ask you, do you get high? Uh, do you get any sense of euphoria at all off of Kratom? That's what the, some people in the government say, that, that people take it to get high. I don't. I take it just to function because every time I move, every time I breathe, every time I eat, I hurt. And so my pain level goes up and down depending a lot on activity level as well. But every day there's a baseline of pain that I have to deal with. Right. And so versus staying in bed or versus being able to get up to sure. a podcast and other things, you know, that's that's the reason why I take it. I don't take it recreationally or I know that's the big word that everybody's scared about. Right. Um, uh, it, it's interesting. It's an interesting substance. Um, it's kind of there's some speculation that the DEA may try and ban it again. You know, we hear, you know, the FDA and the CDC both came out with reports last week saying it was responsible for some overdoses, not that many. And, and also they found heavy metals in, in uh, some Kratom samples. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see what the government has in mind. It is an interesting story that a lot of people I don't think would have found Kratom if they hadn't been cut off from from exactly. opioid pain medicine, right? I mean, I would I would prefer to have both the option to take both. That's how I would. That's how I view things. I think individuals should be free to take what they want for what uh, what purpose that they they desire and to bear the consequences. Right. In, in covering uh, uh, chronic pain and pain management over the last several years, I, I've adopted an attitude very similar to that. Um, I guess you might call it a, a libertarian attitude about it, where if it works for you. Uh, and it works for somebody else and, and their doctor says it's okay, just let them use it. And, uh, you know, if there are negative consequences, that's their responsibility. But don't force your own judgments and your own uh, opinions on other people and deny them a treatment that, that works for them. And that's what's been going on, too. You talked about your survey that you guys did, which was a huge survey of chronic pain patients that uh, that – You've had some really interesting comments about the people, the amount, this the sheer number of people who have been negatively impacted by the CDC guidelines, that, that there is a huge majority of people that were cut off or undertreated. Right. This was a survey. We've done a couple of surveys on the guideline. The most recent one was in, uh, we released it on March 15th of this year, which was the third anniversary of the guidelines release. And, and we found, I'm looking at it right now. Um, uh, you know, the, one of the questions we asked is, did the CDC, CDC guideline improve the quality of pain care in the United States? And, you know, over about 95% of the people said no. Um, uh, do you think the CDC guideline has been successful in reducing addiction and overdoses? Again, about 90% said no. Um, uh, about 80% of the people said that in the last three years since the guideline has come out, about 85% of people, if not, uh, yes, 85% said that their dose has either been reduced or they've been cut off. Wow. So the guideline has had uh, quite an impact. Um, it, it really has. People. It really has. And I think that uh, what's happening now is that they're backpedaling a little bit, that they've moved the bar so far out there that they're, they're trying to relieve some of the political pressure is my impression of what they're doing here because they are kicking the can down the road. I think that's what exactly you said before we started talking, that they are kicking the can down the road. And in fact, that they do have in their letter that they're going to be continue to do studies up until 2020. And so nothing really is going to happen at the earliest 2021. Right. And I think most of those studies that they're doing are just measuring uh, prescriptions. Hmm. Are there more now? Are there less? And of course, prescriptions were declining a good five years before the CDC guideline even came along. 
So to take credit for any decline in prescriptions, you know, yeah, it probably sped up or steepened the, the rise of uh, prescriptions being taken away from people. But I think the bottom line isn't the number of prescriptions. It's the quality of life that people have. And it would be so easy uh, for the CDC to just get together a focus group of patients or do a survey like like we did. I mean, we got 6,000 people to respond to our survey. Uh, uh, and, and so why doesn't the CDC do something like that or the FDA or anyone in the government to finally involve uh, patients in the decisions uh, that they're making and get some feedback from patients? Stop talking to the experts, the researchers with the, you know their questionable uh, databases uh, and just start talking to people. I think you, you'd get a, a pretty clear idea of what uh, of what's been going on just by talking to people. I think that's exactly what we're trying to do with the podcast. We're going to have somebody on uh, in a couple days that is who had Crohn's disease forever and it, absolutely miserable. The traditional uh, medicine didn't work for them. They tried medical cannabis and that worked. Uh, and then they still had some symptoms, but then they, they tried Kratom. And so those two medicines together, they're able to live uh, a normal life and able to open a restaurant and do the things that they want to do in life. And I think that's a big part of this is that a lot of folks don't fit the traditional medical model anymore, that we've been chewed up either through surgery or through disease processes over these years, that we don't fit these uh, diagnostic codes anymore, that they're trying to regiment and, and put us in these little boxes. Right. And, and the person that you mentioned is now, um, so they're employed again, were they unemployed for a while, and, and now they're working again. They're paying their taxes. They're not a burden on society. Uh, and, and, and because they have access to medication or drug, that, that works for them. So what's wrong with that? Exactly. And exact, I think that's more and more of the conversation. The more that the restrictions come down, the more people are going to feel like you are, that you do, and like myself, that individuals should be free. If you own your own body and mind, and you have to live inside your own head and your own body, then who at the CDC, FDA, or DEA should tell you how much pain that you should suffer each day? Right. And opioids um, you know, are an addictive substance. If you misuse them, if you don't use them responsibly, uh, they could be they could be dangerous. If you don't lock them up and keep them away from kids, they may get stolen, or somebody could sneak into your house and take them. Uh, but um, <laughs> I, I tell you, if there's one thing I've learned over the last few years is that pain patients, by and large, are very responsible with their opioid medication. Uh, the, the, if anything, they're they're worried about losing access to it. They're going to keep it locked up. They're going to keep it away from people, and, and they're, they're not going to misuse it. And that's, that's another great point is that people who've never been in chronic pain and dependent on a doctor to relieve that pain, they don't know the sheer terror that you feel when you go into that doctor's office and you're not sure if they're going to feel like or feel comfortable prescribing any longer to you because of the DEA FDA or the CDC. Now when we go to our doctor's office, unfortunately, there's about five other people sitting in the office with us. There's Medicare and Medicaid folks, there's the insurance companies, there's the drug companies, there's the DEA, FDA, and CDC. I guess that's six people. But uh, there's people. Do you think that there is an erosion of the trust between patients and doctors now? Oh, I think so. Uh, I mean, the, the, in the scenario you just laid out, it's the doctor that's caught in the middle between the patient and the, the regulators. Right. And the doctors are, uh, uh, you know, they went to medical school, they've invested a career and a livelihood into to practicing medicine, 
Um, and they know that if they push things too far, that they could get red flagged. Um, the Department of Justice in a few states now have sent warning letters to hundreds of doctors, uh, not because there's any evidence that a patient overdosed has, or has been harmed or become addicted. It's just that those doctors' um, prescribing habits were above average for other Medicare uh, providers. And so they got red flagged and they get this letter from the DEA or the Department of Justice. I mean, if you get a letter from federal prosecutors saying, well, you better cut this out, um, I, I, <laughs> uh, most doctors are going to pay a lot of attention to that. I mean, they don't they don't want to go to prison. They don't want to have their livelihood taken away or lose their license. So, uh, you know, a lot of people blame doctors for what's going on now. And I, I could I could see that point of view. But doctors, uh, you know, a lot of them are doing things that they don't want to do. Uh, but feel they don't have any choice. Now, I would agree with that as well with doctors that they are in a bad spot. We had Dr. Thomas Klein on a couple times, and he did talk about that. He's like, doctors have debt. They, you know, they went to uh, medical school, and that's ex super expensive. They have an, uh, basically an upper middle class lifestyle without any other skill set, and so they're dependent on keeping their license. They're keep uh, dependent on keeping their DEA license because the government does control those. Right. Um, and the DEA, um, you know, it's, you know, like I said, they're 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 using the the, the prescription drug databases. Uh, you know, some of the, there's a popular expression now of something being weaponized, which is basically means you're taking something and using it against somebody else, and that's what the PDMP uh, databases are being used right now. They've been they've been weaponized, not so much to go after patients, which is kind of interesting. They're being weaponized to go after providers and doctors. I've heard from some doctors that they're doing that for financial gain, that they the, that the DEA is looking to seize assets, and that's one of the motivating factors in that. And plus, it, it's a really good headline if you can snatch a doctor and accuse them of being uh, basically a drug dealer and throw them in prison, that that's a good political headline. And also, you know, with civil asset forfeiture, unfortunately, they can seize assets even if there's just an accusation that somebody is doing something illegal that's surrounding drugs. Right. Um, yeah, you're right. A lot of federal prosecutors do wind up running for office uh, later on. Um, so and, and they'll refer back to their career, you know, locking up doctors and things like that um, or other things that they've done. I mean, convictions are obviously an important part for any federal prosecutors, especially if they're going to run for office someday. Yep, definitely. We do see that with former drug warriors running for office and and being quote unquote tough on drugs, you know, but in right. reality, it's tough on individuals who are who are using those drugs or selling those, or if they're legally selling those, like doctors are, they can get caught up in in that as well. Do you think yeah. that why do you think nobody's talking about the DEA right now? Because I think that's an excellent point that the FDA has come out, and we'll talk about their their letter in just a moment, but the the CDC has come out and backed not back down from the guidelines, but say we're going to clarify those in the future. But people forget that there's a government police force that all they do is enforce the drug law and that that in their view, nothing has changed. Um, the reason they're doing it is because they're able to get away with it. Um, um, and, that, and this hasn't all of these issues that we've been talking about have not been covered well by the mainstream press. Things really have started to improve in the last year or two, but that's not saying a whole bunch. Um, uh, you know, we, you know, we don't see exposés on NBC that often, or they just actually did someone, uh, did one last week that was well received. And, uh, it was a story about a woman in Seattle who was profiled in, as part of that human 
Rights Watch report that came out uh, a couple of months. If, if you if your your viewers out there haven't heard about the Human Rights Watch report, it's something you should look into. It's really worth reading. Uh, I'd, I'd recommend it to anyone, um, even if they're not a patient or a caretaker or a doctor. I mean, everyone should read uh, read that report to get a, a it's a good fundamental uh, um, uh, background teacher about what's going on. Uh, where was I? I was in the middle of thought. I got uh, distracted a bit. Yes, yeah, with the DEA, uh, they can get away with it. And that, you know, the, 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 the Human Rights Watch story, that they're not going after individuals, but now the media is actually covering it better right. than they were beforehand. All it will take is the New York Times or the Washington Post or somebody to do a story about the DEA uh, practicing medicine without a license. Um, and stories like that have a tendency to snowball. Uh, other uh, news agencies and organizations uh, repeat those kind of efforts, and, and that's what will lead to change. Well, that's, that's great that you mentioned the Human Rights Watch story, and we'll put a link on that in the show notes, definitely, uh, because I think that's an important part of this. And the work that you guys do over at Pay News Network is also a, an important part because you've been doing it for years, and you've seen the progression of people and there's been a desperation in the pain community for the last few years. What are people thinking? Have you gotten any response yet from the from the pain community, so to speak, about these guidelines, uh, about the CDC talking about these guidelines again, and about the FDA's letter about that doctors sure. shouldn't shouldn't taper, you know, without basically the consent of the individual, which I think is absolutely insanity that we have to have a federal agency actually come out and say that. Um, and it was interesting that the FDA did it first, not the CDC. Um, yeah, the feedback I've gotten uh, through social media and comments that people uh, leave on the website or they email me directly, um, there's a lot of skepticism out there about just what the CDC has in mind. Uh, it's kind of an attitude of, well, it's kind of, you're too late to try and uh, rectify or change this situation and, and remedy it. Uh, you should have done this three years ago. Um, so, you know, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, they said that they're going to clarify it, so we'll see. It'll be interesting how long it takes for them to clarify it, too. That will be, and I'm not even sure what the word clarify means in a legal sense. Um, it could mean, <laughs> in a legal sense, it could mean that they're going to uh, add one dot or dot one I or cross one T. It That's could be it. really minimal. Exactly. Definitely. And the, the FDA letter that came out on April 9th, they talked about that a lot, they were getting reports that a lot of people were being tapered um, off of opioids or even cut off of opioids. Mm -hmm. And that was leading to very harmful effects on individuals. And actually, I believe that, you know, I'm not sure about the reporting on the suicides or not, but I'm sure that suicides have occurred because of these type of actions. We started covering uh, suicides in the pain community, um, you know, soon after the CDC guideline came out. Um, there was a, you know, was a case up in Montana. I remember it well because I looked into it hard. I wanted to make sure I got my facts right. But this was a, a gentleman, uh, I'll use his first name, Brian. He was a pain patient at a clinic in Great Falls, Montana. The, the, the clinic adopted the CDC guidelines, even though, and applied it to a broad swath of patients, whether uh, even even though the, the clinic obviously was not a primary care provider, they were a pain clinic. They were not obligated to adopt the guideline, but they did. And one of the first thing they did was take away, uh, uh, I think uh, they took away about half of Brian's um, uh, oxycodone that he was on. 
Um, he went without uh, or, or not as much as he should have been getting for, for a couple of weeks and um, eventually grew despondent over it and, and took his own life. Wow. It is a matter of life and death when it comes to pain. Because I've, I've been there before that I've had crippling pain that wouldn't go away. And that if you're not able to find relief, there's only, unfortunately, one option that keeps running through your head. And so suicide is something that people in pain do contemplate more than, than they'll ever admit to. Uh, especially right. when they're, when you have your body betraying you, then you have, you feel like you've been betrayed by your doctor. And on top of that, you're being betrayed by the government who is supposed to protect your individual rights and not violate them. There was another suicide in Montana that happened about a year ago. It was a former patient of Dr. Tennant who uh, became despondent after a tenant's uh, your listeners may be familiar with Dr. Tennant and his story, but his office was raided and his clinic uh, shut down for a while. And one of his patients up in Montana uh, became so despondent over uh, over that and, and about losing access to treatment that she took her own life. Yeah, it is. It's de- those are very unnecessary deaths. And it felt like for a long time in the pain community that those in the addiction community, their deaths were outweighing those of people in pain. But I think that narrative is starting to change. Right. I think. Well, these are cases where you can you can connect the dots between the DEA raid and the death of this this uh, uh, Montana woman, and go back a little bit further, and there's the there's the CDC connecting the dot to this other uh, gentleman in, in Montana who took his own life. Montana is often referred to as a, as a, as a desert wasteland when it comes to pain care right now. I think there are only a handful, and, and that may be an exaggeration, there may not even be a handful of doctors willing to write prescriptions for opioids in Montana right now. A lot of people have to get treatment uh, if they are in severe need of op- opioids. They have to leave the state to get treatment. Wow, that's that's insanity too. And the people who do stick around, their prescribing is going to be above "quote unquote" right. average guidelines as well. And so you're kind of setting up this terrible right. exactly. snowball effect. That's a good point. Um, there's always going to be someone who's above average in their prescribing habits, and the and the fewer doctors that you have out there prescribing, um, then well, that means somebody else may or may not pick up the slack. But uh, then they're going to start they're going to start to show up in the in the databases and and in the in the algorithms that control all of our lives these days. Um, uh, and they're going to get red, red flagged and they may get that warning letter from the federal prosecutor. And that's it. And they should take that extremely seriously, doctors. And I know they do because it's not only uh, their livelihood at stake, it's also their patients, the ones that they are able to take care of. Because when the DEA does come in, a lot of times they're going to seize medical records and sometimes they can take those medical records for a while. Uh, yes, yes, they can. And, uh, and then there's a struggle for the patients. Um, the, the DEA won't give the records back to the doctor, but they'll ask that the patient, this was the case in the, in the tenant raid, the patients had to go to the federal prosecutors and ask to get their own patient records back. And of course, that isn't something that happens instantaneously. Uh, it takes some time. And so the patient doesn't have their medical records. I mean, if they want, wanted to go to and see another doctor, it would be helpful to have all of that information all, all together. Uh, and so it's just it's another way to get around to denial of care or, or make it difficult to get care. And denial of care, I think, is something that's happening a lot. And that's really a silent, uh, a silent thing that's happening out there because doctors can easily deny care. And then there's no paper trail of that at all. 
They're just right. saying no to people when they call up and ask them because when I was searching for pain clinics, I called 10 of them. And out of that, only two would, uh, would um, agree to see me, but they couldn't guarantee anything that I had to go see them for an initial visit, which costs 400 to $600 for the initial visit. And then after that, they would tell me if I would be able to treat it, be able to be treated. <laughs> but those eight other ones that I called, they have no record that I ever talked to them. There's no record of them declining or denying medical treatment. Um, it, it's a sad story. And again, to circle back a little bit, it's something that everyone needs to pay attention to, whether you have pain, chronic pain, uh, or, or you have a loved one with pain. Chances are at some point in your life, you're going to need surgery or you're going to break a bone or you're going to wind up in the hospital with arthritis or rhumatoid arthritis, uh, uh, assortment of different things that can cause pain. And, and you're going to want adequate pain treatment. And right now you can't get that reliably in the United States. It's kind of incredible that, uh, that we live in a, you know, one of the most developed countries on earth and, and access to something as basic as pain care is difficult to get. Um, I hear stories of cancer patients not being able to get pain uh, medication, not being allowed to get opioids. Um, I hear stories about people getting serious surgeries and after the surgeries ended, uh, they get sent home with uh, Tylenol and, 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 and told to take, uh, put an ice pack on wherever the surgery point was. Um, and, and that's their pain medication these days. We've kind of flipped the lid. We've gone back 100 years. And uh, next we'll be uh, ask, telling people to bite on sticks if they're in pain. That, don't give them any ideas. The CDC <laughs> might put those in their guidelines. So, yeah, they are, they are clarifying those now. So you never know what they're going to do. Well, well you, biting on sticks is not addictive, and it um, and it doesn't cost any money. Well, maybe they won't like that because it doesn't cost any money. There's nobody out there selling sticks. There'll probably be medically uh, prescribed sticks to, to bite on them. <laughs> Good point. Well, what do you think, Pat, going forward for people in pain? Because there are horror stories out there of people being let out of surgery, not having pain medicine, and there's... There's more and more of those, it seems like, every day. When I was in the hospital in 2017, I would have jumped out a window if I could have. That's when the abscess started after a surgery, and it took three days for them to figure out what it was. But in the meantime, they wouldn't increase my pain medicine uh, because they didn't think I needed it. They think I was just, uh, that I should just tough it out. And if people don't understand what it's like to lay in bed and you feel powerless, especially when those who are supposed to be taking care of you and those charged with that aren't actually taking care of one of the basic needs, which is to help you alleviate pain. That, that's something I think leaves scars. I really do. And I don't think that's good for society as well. I think that, that there's some deep scars that have, been, that have been dug in the psyche of individuals who maybe it's not post-traumatic stress disorder, but at the same time, it is a form of trauma. Yes, and it impacts uh, not just the pain patient, it, it affects spouses, it affects children, it affects grandchildren, it affects uh, employers, friends, uh, you, you name it. Uh, the, it's, it has ramifications all through society, and you, you, we're, we're taking people who could lead productive and happy lives if they had a proper level of medication, and when you take that medication away from them, you're not only causing more pain, you're creating more disability, you're creating more unemployment. You're triggering a cascade of other health problems that can be caused by all of these things. And, and so that's, that drives healthcare costs up further. There, there's just a lot of different ramification of this. That, that It's not well thought through 
Uh, I don't think the CDC ever did it. Uh, think this entirely through the way they should have of, of what these guidelines are going to do. And we, we had Thomas Klein on, and he talked about how the CDC, they, that's really not their regulatory uh, mandate either, is to no, go after no. doctors and how they prescribe. In fact, that's really the FDA should be the one pointing out what they should and shouldn't be doing with prescription drugs. The story behind that uh, is that uh, uh, Dr. Kolodny and Prop, uh, you know, was after the FDA repeatedly to, to, to change their warning labels on, on opioids um, and, and, to, and to get prescribers to prescribe uh, more safely. Uh, and the FDA, you know, looked into, the, to, into their request and said no. And at that point, uh, Dr. Kolodny turned to the CDC. He was well acquainted with the then director of the uh, CDC. He had worked for him, and they were friends. Um, and he, you know, got this, got the ball rolling, rolling with the, with the guideline. There were a total, if I remember correctly, there were a total of five people involved with Prop, including their president, uh, vice president, and other uh, members who were appointed to CDC panels that eventually uh, drafted the guidelines. And I think that is unconscionable that we can live in a quote-unquote free society where a small handful of people who are who have self-interest in these guidelines, who are trying to use the force of the government to benefit themselves, that they can do this behind closed doors and to affect the lives of millions and millions of people without there ever being a vote on this. No, my representative never voted on it. I personally never voted on it. I don't think, to be fair, I don't think that Dr. Kolodny benefited personally uh, from any of this. I, I think he's just a true believer in, in his cause. I, I don't think anyone in prop has personally benefited. Uh, you know, I hear these stories from time to time is that they have stock in companies that sell Suboxone or that they took money under the table. Um, you know, if there's any evidence of that, I'd be happy to see it and report on it. But I've never seen any proof of that. Well, that's a good point. I'm glad that you brought that up because I have heard that in a lot of different places. So that's a that's a great point to clarify that because in this country we are presumed innocent before any kind of uh, uh, guilt is laid on anybody. So I appreciate that. And we did have Josh Bloom on, and we did talk a little bit about the statistics and and the different ways that the CDC has been manipulating statistics or even putting out false information with the different charts and it's really incredible about how they can talk about evidence-based solutions or using science to to basically push all of this stuff when in reality the science that they're basing it on seems really really suspect it is really suspect uh, you know i'm sure josh told you that um, that that they were combining deaths from illegal opioids like uh, like heroin and fentanyl and combining it with prescription drug deaths and 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 that and just throwing that one big number out there and reporting that is as something that was attributable to uh, prescription opioids. Um, you know, I, I think people in the pain community are aware of how those numbers were manipulated and falsely reported, but I don't think the average person out there is aware uh, yet how conflated those numbers were and how wrong they were. And that's a great point about the average person out there who's not in this world that one day they will be that everybody is going to get sick one day, everybody's going to have to have surgery, everybody's going to have a family member um, that's going to get sick and in pain. And one of the worst feelings in the world, I've been in pain pretty much all my life. I've had about 50 bowel obstructions, which are horrifically painful. I've had pancreatitis, which is absolutely insane how bad that hurts. And I've had terrible, terrible surgeries where they had to 
scrape the bottom of my pelvis to, to remove adhesion. So oh. pain is something I'm familiar with, but the worst pain I've ever felt is seeing a family member writhing in agony and not being able to get them pain medicine when their doctor said that they didn't need it. And I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Uh, it's a sad state of affairs that we've come to. What do you think going forward, Pat, about the future of this? And I know we talked a little bit about them clarifying that in the next couple of years, we're going to see that. Do you think this is just a safety valve or do you think that the pain community is actually gaining ground with getting the message uh, into the mainstream media? The, uh, the community is gaining ground uh, incrementally. Um, you know, that some of the media coverage has, has gotten a little bit more fair uh, and is willing to tell the, the, the other side. Uh, but I still see a story. There was a story in the Seattle Times today about, uh, you know, efforts to, to tighten prescriptions in Washington state where they're already very tight. Um, and it was a long article talking that quoted a number of experts talking about, um, uh, you know, how the, the guidelines that were developed in Washington state were just fine and people shouldn't have to worry about them because they could still get their medication when they needed it. Well, and nowhere in the article did, did the reporter uh, uh, quote a, a patient uh, or a practicing doctor. It was all the, you know, the usual uh, suspects of uh, uh, experts and, and, and regulators who were making these decisions. Um, in instances like that, if, if, if a pain patient really wants to uh, make a difference and, and be heard, uh, you know, we hear a lot of stories about people, you know, writing away to their congressmen or politicians and trying to get them to listen. And, and, there, and some people do have some success in that, but most people just get back a form letter mm -hmm. right. that, uh, um, you know, that will uh, totally dance around the whole subject of I can't get pain medication. <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, I'm a member of the media. I have been for a long time. When I get an email sent to me or a comment, I read it, and it has some impact. Um, and I, I don't think I'm any different than the average reporter or editor out there. Um, they do listen. If you uh, if if you see an article that you don't like or you think was unfair, call up the editor, write a letter to the editor, contact the reporter, and, and make yourself heard. And, and 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 I honestly do believe that editors and reporters. Are, are anxious to get feedback, and, and the vast majority of them want to be fair and to do the story right. Um, they just may not know how to do it right, and you have to tell them. Um, but, but So patients can have an impact doing that. And, and once the story starts to change a little bit in the, in the popular press, as it has recently, I think that's the point where politicians who have not so far come around to, to, to thinking about these things differently, but once the narrative in the media starts to change, then politicians will start to notice too. And and when pain the pain community becomes more organized and participates in in protests or starts to uh, back certain candidates or oppose certain candidates because of, because of their pain policies, um, that's the point where I where I think things will really start to change uh, is at the political level. But to get to that political level first, you have to change the narrative in the press. I think that's a, that's an excellent point, Pat, and I've not heard that before with folks talking about how to make a change. And, you know, I've never been in the media. I'm, I, I do a podcast here, but the idea that reporters aren't this malicious force out there that no. are trying to push one side or the other that, like you said, a lot of times people do things when they don't know how to do it any differently. 
that they're they that they have what they have and that's what they're they're using to put out the story you know reporters are just like anyone else in any other job uh, you know they're most people are trying to do a good job but they're they uh, the, the, the journalism in this country has changed significantly just in the last 10 or 20 years there are i, I think uh, 50 percent fewer reporters now than there were a decade ago wow. uh, they just disappeared because of changes in advertising and the media markets there a lot of reporters have lost their jobs the ones who are left are ones that are not so likely to have any experience covering healthcare issues. Uh, they're just, a, you know, general assignment reporters. They may get a story assigned to them to, you know, go, go cover this, uh, this doctor who's on trial for, for, for prescribing. And, and so then the reporter is kind of a, a novice on the subject and they're, they're, they're going to Google just like you and I Google things. They're going to Google, okay, what did this doctor do? Or what's this story about opioids? And, you know, what's wrong with oxycodone? So, and whatever the Google search term uh, uh, produces, um, that's going to be their resource. And so if the, the narrative that's out there now is anti-opioid, anti-opioid, um, then that's what the reporter is going to see. And that's going to be in their head when they're doing that story. And it becomes, it's, it's a vicious circle. Um, people just uh, keep repeating the same thing and, and, and making the same mistakes. And then it does get into the popular consciousness because a lot of people just read headlines, unfortunately. And I know my mom has actually talked to many of the, her coworkers and friends about this who, you know, when, a, uh, when the story comes up on the news, they're totally anti-opioids. Nobody should be getting pain pills. And then she relates my story and then they start to see it differently. And I think personal stories are, are very important. And that's really what turns the tide, I think, on every issue. It is the personal story because in the end, it's only the individual who acts. It's only the individual right. who feels. And at the end of the day, we're not a statistic. We're actually an individual with a mind, body, and I think a soul. And that's another, you raise a very important point too, is that when if you're going to write to an editor or call a reporter, uh, offer to tell your story and have, have them use your name and be a real person out there. It's these real human interest stories that uh, ultimately are going to change things. You know, PNN, a lot of the stuff that we do is based on, um, you know, emails or, or uh, that people send to me telling their story. And I'll get back to them and I'll say, you know, will you let me share your story? Can, can I turn your email into a column? And, you know, about half of people are, are say yes. Others, you know, are concerned about privacy and I get that too. I'm a private person as well. But uh, if you really want to change things, you have to be willing to stick the, your foot forward and take uh, take a risk. I think you're exactly right about privacy. For a long time, I never spoke out about it because one, I was afraid of how I'd be viewed because there is a stigma around people still who use pain medicine because yeah. um, yeah. people think you're weak or trying to get high. And two, that you feel like that's going to be used against you, any information that you put out there by people to deny you pain medicine later on, that somehow that they'll use that information in some kind of way down the road or if you, with your employer or with other relationships that you do have. So I can definitely see that. But at the same time, I think the more people share their story, the less stigma there is, just like with medical marijuana. I think that yes. changed the entire conversation when there were individuals who said, hey, I use this, and I, I'm a productive citizen. If I didn't have it, I wouldn't be. There's a lot more interest in, uh, in medical marijuana now than when I first started covering, you know, pain a few years ago. Um, and, you know, back then, the, um, 
people really didn't know what CBD was or why it was different from THC. And of course, they, they didn't have all these products, these edibles and these lotions and oils that you can take. Those weren't um, widely available on the market. Uh, they are now. And, and not to be to sound too jaded about this, but the, the medical marijuana is more accepted today in part because you've got so many companies entering that space and making money off of it. And so they're advertising and they're changing the narrative. And suddenly mer medical marijuana, which when we were growing up was this evil drug, is now like mainstream. You can go into CVS now and Walgreens and buy CBD products. They may not do you any good, <laughs> but, uh, but you can buy them there. And so the stigma is kind of washed away. I do use CBD oil. I do use it. And I, I found some relief with it. I think it, it's, it's helped me. I, I've got a company that I trust, the same one that I get my Kratom from. And, right. uh, and so I, I do think, personally, I've found benefit from it. Uh, right. I, I, I know it, I've heard a lot of good things about CBD oil, in, including people who just figured out a way to make it at home. Hmm. Um, um, but I, I guess the point I was trying to make there is that most of the products that you'll see in, in Walgreens or CBS, these CBD products, uh, they're dietary supplements, and dietary supplements are not well regulated. In fact, they're not regulated at all, to tell you the truth. Um, uh, and so a, a company can pretty much sell whatever they want. There is a lot out there, definitely, that uh, the company that I use, we had the owner on, and he talked about how they went out and, and bought on the Las Vegas Strip, there in Las Vegas, a bunch of CBD products and had it tested. And out of nine of them, I think only three had CBD oil in it. So I, <laughs> I definitely understand what you're saying, that people need to be careful what their sources are when they're Right. When they're buying products. I definitely agree with that. Well, Pat, is, go ahead. Did you do you have a lot of people talking about CD, CBD oil on your on Pain News Network? Um, you know, like I said, the, you know, the uh, a few years ago when we would do a, a medical marijuana story, there wouldn't be much reaction to it. Now, now people have the opinions about it, and and it's it spans the gamut from people saying, "Yeah, CBD really helped me a lot. This is great." Others say, well, it didn't work for me at all. It's too expensive. I can't take it because my doctor would throw a fit. Um, uh, it, it, it's all over the place. And then one of the reasons I think it's all over the place is that the access to it, depending on what state you live in, can vary considerably. Mm -hmm. And also the products that are out there that are out there can vary considerably. It's, it's, a, it's unregulated. And, and I think at some point, um, I know a lot of people won't, won't like hearing this, but I, I do think medical marijuana and Kratom at some point are going to have to be regulated by the government. Because if you're going to put these things in the marketplace, there has to be some, some measure of quality control. And, and that's totally absent right now. And, it, and it's, it's really buyer beware. doesn't mean that uh, uh, you shouldn't try it. Maybe you should try it if you lose access to these other treatments. But you really need to be careful about what companies you buy things from and, and what's in them. Because most of the time, you don't know. That's a great point. And for years, I wouldn't try Kratom until, I don't know if you watched the Joe Rogan Experience podcast or not. It's one of the biggest in the world. Uh, but he had Chris Bell on there. It, he was the director of A Leaf of Faith about the Kratom industry. And he gave Rogan um, some Kratom to try. And it was the company that I, that I, that I found through that. It's Urban Ice Organics. And that's the brand I use. And so mm -hmm. I, I've, I've talked to them. I've called them. I've, had, I've met them in person. And, you know, I've talked to them uh, from the podcast. And, and it is buyer beware that people should be careful what they buy out there and, 
and what they put in their bodies and find folks that you do trust. I think that is that is a great message on that. Well, Pat, well, I really appreciate your time today. Where can people find more of your work? Is it mostly through Pain News Network? Yes, uh, that's that's my sole uh, horse right now. The only one I ride. Uh, PainNewsNetwork.org is where you can find us on the internet. Um, we do have uh, uh, a newsletter that we also send out uh, a couple of times a month, in which I kind of summarize our our key stories for. Uh, the previous weeks. Um, we're on track to reach uh, about 2 million people um, this year, wow. which we're very proud of. It gives you an idea of, of just the, the breadth of, uh, uh, of the interest in, uh, that people have in this topic. We reach, we're going to be reaching 2 million people this year in about 50 different countries. That's amazing. That's good and kind of terrifying in a way as well that there's so many people out there in pain that are hungry for this news, and I'm glad that you guys do exist, that, you're, that you have an outlet where you've been telling the story of people in chronic pain for years now, and everybody else is just now trying to, trying to catch up what you've been doing. Well, thank you. Um, it, it was, I uh, appreciate the recognition, and thank you for having me as a guest. Well, thank you, Pat. A lot of great information there. I recommend everybody go to painnewsnetwork.org. Subscribe to the newsletter, and like Pat said, even if you're not in chronic pain, this issue affects us all because we all live in a society together, and that every family has somebody in pain, every family has somebody who's chronically ill, or they know somebody who does, and eventually it's going to affect every one of us as we do age. So thank you, Pat, for your time, and thanks everybody for listening today, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.